Welcome to another episode of The Artsy Raven, a show about writing and publishing with your host, J.F. Garrard. Welcome to another episode of The Artsy Raven, and today our special guest is Chris Bowser, who has spent her life adventuring in the rocky hills and forests of southern New England. Goblins taught her how to sneak into the other worlds that exist tucked into corners and around bends. Though Chris is in the rebel band of superheroes and outcasts, she is often caught in the dystopian clutches of mundane problems and must send her characters to do her adventuring for her. She lives with her partner in an old mill town, haunted by the spirits and shadows of machines and industry. So welcome, Chris. Hello. Now, before we started, I was saying your bio sounded very gothic. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you started writing? So in hindsight, I might have started writing by accident. I like to draw cartoons a lot when I was a kid, maybe middle school age. I would just have pages and pages of cartoons drawn in ballpoint pen and notebooks. And I wasn't really totally confident in my drawing skills. And over time, it just, I took out more and more pictures and replaced them with boxes of text. And then there was one day early on in high school when a teacher read something I'd written out loud and she said something along the lines of, you know, you're really quiet. I think you're one of those people that maybe expresses themselves more naturally through writing than speech. And it was kind of like an aha, you know, like that really resonated with me. And so then I ended up just kind of writing more and more in my notebooks and eventually going into fantasy. I think there was something similar. Yeah, when I was younger, I painted a lot. And then obviously I ran out of time, but I guess over time, I still think of writing in a way like painting, except it's a little bit, you're painting with words, right? Instead of with actual paints. But I also find it a very complex art uh, to do compared to painting or drawing or sketching. I don't know, it just seems harder to me. Writing's really hard. I don't know why, yeah. maybe it's just me. It's yeah. just struggling to find those words to convey um, how you feel. But at the same time, I feel that it's a little, like you could say a lot more with words than with a painting. Like with a painting, you paint it and then people sort of interpret it. But with words, you can sort of say it close to exactly what you want them to think and hopefully they'll get the message. Yeah. So. Exactly. Uh, like with writing, I, if I have something I want to convey, I feel like I can convey exactly what I want to. It might take a couple of revisions, but I can get there. Drawing is harder. Yeah, but, you know, and drawing has changed so much. I was looking actually at digital tools and stuff like that. I'm bugging my friends and I was like, oh, man, you guys need all this equipment. And I w- went to the art supply store recently. I was like, I don't remember art supplies being so expensive. I don't know if they raised the price there somewhere. But anyhow, but it's I think it's different avenues. I mean, you know, and I don't think people should be surprised if someone is also a writer and an artist. I think people silo themselves too much into one thing, you know, like. Yeah, and there are a lot of transferable skills too. I mean, drawing and writing are both really based on observation. You know, you have to to look at things in order to convey them to someone else. Yeah, I don't know if you are familiar with Clive Barker. I remember when I was growing up, I read quite a bit of his stuff and he was also an artist. So it was nice to see like him doing all sorts of different things and then he did movies and stuff too but I kind of outgrew him but anyhow so let's talk a little bit about your books and what type of things do you write um I guess I'm kind of all over the spectrum as far as like fantasy science fiction um 
I have my book Pumpkin Goblins, which is kind of a fantasy Halloween adventure. I'm working on a secondary world fantasy that's not a kid's book. It's more complex world building, big political stuff going on, crazy magic. And then for short stories, I tend to do more sci-fi. Oh, okay, okay. Like, would you want to write? Maybe it's like science fantasy. I don't know. I'm not a super science person. But you see people like with the hard science fiction, right? Like they want a lot of the data and the research and stuff. And then there's also the, I guess what I call softer science fiction. I I think I write more softer. I mean, I know there's the data there and stuff, but I don't want to spend all my words talking about how a machine works, right? Like it's part of the story to me. It's not like um, that essential to go into the nitty gritty. Um, like hard sci-fi can be fun but mostly I'm just like I want you to trick me into think that thinking this is real like it doesn't have yeah. to really yeah. measure up <laughs> so what are the some of the techniques that you use for your world building in your fantasy and science fiction like how do you start off like a piece like do you think about it visually and you describe things or do you write down because I don't know I've seen all these like different tools people use right like they think about the society and the language and blah 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 I don't know lately I've started a picture board of like putting faces on I don't know it helps me to visualize a little bit yeah um I don't know I I don't feel like I use a lot of tools aside from just maybe thinking tools Mm -hmm. Um, I'll start out with just a question or something that interests me and I'll try to extrapolate from there and sometimes I'll do like really just crappy hand-drawn sketchy little maps and that was something I did with pumpkin goblins where I just sort of drew a bunch of stuff and there was a weird scribble in the corner and that ended up being kind of a a magical thing in the story called the bramble dark where it was all scribbly so it was like oh this is kind of a a vine magic thing and it protects the source of Halloween in the world. Is that the book that you're releasing in October or? Yeah or re-releasing yeah. Okay. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the story and what inspired it. So it's about a kid having the worst Halloween ever. You know, she wants to go out trick or treat and her family is just completely apathetic. You know, her parents are going out to a lecture about trick or treating rather than taking her. Her brother (laughs) is just all about playing video games. And so, yeah, she just can't do anything she wants to do. And she ends up running into these goblins and they're professional pumpkin snatching goblins and they have all these cool machines and stuff and they they steal pumpkins and take them back to the goblin oak which is the source of all halloween in the world and the goblin oak is under attack by some summer magic so amber ends up going in and helping them with that and just getting dragged into that whole saving halloween sort of quest oh so she's helping the goblins not yeah goblins oh that's interesting yeah no they're good I feel like there are a lot of books where goblins are bad and I like I don't know I like the kind of goblin aesthetic like goblin core and I liked goblins in the castle by Bruce Cavill when I was a kid mm-hmm. so yeah there's lots of goblins they do cool stuff so what is a goblin like how would you describe a goblin like I don't because I didn't grow up in a I don't think we had goblins uh described to me when I was growing up other uh than in fairy tales like european fairy tales yeah yeah it's definitely it's european fairy tale creature um i think i described mine as being maybe waist high they're not like teeny tiny they're a little bigger and they're kind of wiry and they have sort of a vibe where they look sort of tree rootish and or at least that's how i i describe them i wanted them to feel like sort of like they're part of their natural setting and you know where they live in the tree 
So when you first wrote this book, did you try looking for a traditional avenue to publish or did you just decide to self-publish from the beginning? I just decided to self-publish. That's kind of always where my spirit's been in self-publishing. Uh, even before Kindle was really a thing or any of that, I had talked with my partner because his parents owned a print shop and we'd talked about buying the supplies from them and using the machines and actually mm -hmm. like binding the books and using perfect binding techniques and just selling them by hand different places. But then okay. even after sort of like researching more publishing options, I'm still like even business-wise definitely yeah. more interested in self-publishing. Yeah, did you guys end up making any books with his parents? I mean, since the print shop is available? Or? No, I mean, it's shut down now, but we didn't okay. do that because I didn't finish the book I was working on at the time. <laughs> <laughs> like finishing a book is a completely different skill set than starting one. And I did not have that yet. Yeah, I have to admit one of the big advantages of uh, print on demand is like you don't need a closet full of books because I talked to other people that yeah. published in the past and they're like, oh, yeah, we had to order a thousand copies, right, to get, you know, the margins. Yeah. So then when we sell it, we actually make a little bit of money, but you need the space to store all that stuff and to lug yeah, around. I that. Yeah, but I have to admit, yeah, because of COVID with all the virtual conventions, I'm not lugging books around anymore and, you know, mm -hmm. sort of putting out the displays but books are heavy I mean I love books but they're really heavy around yeah. so oh my goodness um so how did you deal with marketing of some of your books like uh, as a self-publisher indie author um badly at first <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so it's something you know I've been learning a lot more about and committing to more you know over the last couple years and at this point you know, because I'd rather be writing, I have designated time once a week. And, you know, I have set list of things to do. Like I have a list, here's my newsletter, here's my website. And, you know, because I don't often have good energy to go and do marketing things, I just try to do what I feel like I can do and what's comfortable to me. Because a lot of the advice out there, it's stuff that, you know, like get out of your comfort zone, that kind of thing, you know, go on social media constantly. And, you know, there's, there's some wisdom to that, but if it's something I'm doing on a weekly or more than weekly basis, you know, and it's something I'm resistant to, it's not going to get done. Yeah, similar to someone asking me, like, do you want to be a publisher or do you want to be a writer? And I was like, I want to do both. Why not I both? Yeah, I, but I do know, I know what she's saying. She's just sort of like, you know, you need to save your time for writing. So I am trying yeah. to do that. Like, I'm aware of that, but at the same time, I don't mind like you know late at night when you have no more energy to write anyways that's what so sometimes I think yeah. about doing the marketing stuff right because there's all these other things you could be doing and we actually met on story origins uh, because yeah. we're both uh, you know story origins is this website where you can uh, share samples of your work or let people download bo your books for free etc and the whole idea is to build a community and build an email list although I know they have other things on story origins like the arcs uh, I've not done that where you send out drafts. I didn't have much drafts. luck with that. Really? Okay, I've not yeah. done that. Um, the newsletter swaps. I'm always surprised when someone's or someone's like, oh, why don't I trade a mention of your book in my newsletter and you know, vice versa. I'm like, all right, that's fine. So I never check up on people because I'm like, yeah, it's too much work, you know, <laughs> to make sure yeah. or not they did it. But I know there's another one called Book Funnel, my friend keeps telling me about, but I've not done that either. It's similar to story yeah. origins, I think. No, it sounded you, more expensive and I'm not sure it had yeah. all the same features either. 
Yeah, and then there's another thing called BookBub, where you have to write a proposal and then supposedly people see samples of your work and then they'll buy it. I heard that that's quite successful, but that costs money. Like, well, that's the thing, right? Like how much money do you want to spend to uh, sell your books and will you ever earn it back? And sometimes you don't, right? It's just, uh, you just throw, throw your money out for marketing and stuff like that, so. Yeah, I know another writer who said something like, I try to think of it as just a really expensive hobby and not get my hopes up. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's sad because we put a lot of work into our craft and stuff and like, you know, yeah, it's probably a good attitude to have. Yeah, I was talking to someone that's been doing it for well, like 20 years, um, but they don't work. It's their full time thing. Mm-hmm. And um but yeah, they are not earning much. Like there are only so many JK Rowling's. It's like winning the lottery really to become a JK Rowling. Um, yeah. Or even Margaret Atwood to reach, I mean, Margaret Atwood, like, you know, she wrote for many, many years before anyone picked up Handsmaid's Tale to become a TV series yeah. and all that stuff. And, and I think she let go of the rights for that uh, at the time when she sold her book. So she's not even making money off the TV stuff, but at oh. least she got um, a job, I think as a producer. So it's kind of, oh my gosh, all these different ways to hustle, to try to make a living. Um, so do you have any advice for people trying to finish a book? Like I meet a lot of people that start, mm-hmm. but then it's hard to finish. So. Um, this might be something I put too much thought into and could probably talk about for a long time because I used to be really bad at finishing stuff. And now I've gotten a lot better at that. And I have a system that works pretty well for me especially for picking up older projects and getting them done. Um, so pretty much I start out before I even look at the project again, I take maybe just 10 or 20 minutes and do sort of a list or a mind map of why am I coming back to this project? What is interesting or compelling? Like, what do I wanna do with this? And that's kind of my guiding North Star as I go through the rest of it and make decisions. And I, when I read through, I try to look for, okay, how much work is this actually gonna be? Should I? finish it in the form I thought I was going to finish it and what are some things in here that are interesting that I want to follow up on when I figure out the ending and after that it's just like a lot of brainstorming and writing and back and forth between brainstorming and writing and pruning things down again yeah I was like listening to Joanne Penn an indie author and she was saying she uses stickers on calendars I bought a bunch of stickers, but you know what? It doesn't do it for me. The sticker thing, yeah, no, it doesn't work. I mean, I think um, just every day for like me, deadlines. Just, yeah, deadlines. So I know, like, you know, there's some manuscript competition coming up, which I probably won't win. But then I'm thinking, okay, you know mm-hmm. what? By this date, I'll try to at least submit something to this competition, and mm-hmm. then most likely it won't go anywhere. But at least I finish something, and then okay, if it doesn't make it to that competition, then maybe I'll start. Because this one, I want to try getting it traditionally published. Um, mm-hmm. See, I've never, I've only published short stories um, traditionally. I've never published a whole novel. So I'd like to give it a shot. A few years ago, um, I had written a book about East Me Sweats vampires and I tried to shop it for like two years. And everyone told me that vampires were European. So I got tired of that. I did a Kickstarter and then I self-published. But I think now, maybe, with all this talk about diversity, maybe there's a chance they'll look at something that's a bit different. But I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, I don't want to be cynical if it's all talk or are they really doing something? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, 
and uh, sometimes I wonder if it's easier to pick up books in like certain genres like romance or whatever like you know very light stories and you know yeah but uh so we'll see we'll see what happens if change is coming if they're publishing more females and you know I don't know especially in science fiction right like I find it hard to get some of my science fiction stories written uh published and sometimes I wonder is it because there's like you could tell it's a female perspective like I don't know you know what I mean like yeah so I mean, that's one reason I published under Chris I mean I go by Chris in my real life but that is a consideration I had when I decided I'm going to use Chris Bowser as my publishing name what because it's a gender neutral name and people mistake me for a guy a lot and if they don't see my face and sometimes that's convenient to me yeah I do the same thing with J.F. Garrard people just think yeah. I'm an old man but anyhow <laughs> but um but is chris your i guess is chris your real name or is it crystal or Kristen? yeah Kristen. oh okay okay yeah, so, I go by chris pretty much all the time anyway okay cool so what is the latest project that you're working on so i'm working on a book called stars fall out it's one of those secondary world fantasy books series and it's actually three books because it was over a thousand pages so i decided i'm gonna just chunk it into three parts you know um, but yeah, so it's a secondary world fantasy, and it takes place in this little coastal city that's mostly dominated by a university, and it's under an imperial occupation. The imperials have magic that no one else has. It's one of the reasons why they're in charge of everything, until one day this guy, a professor at the university, he decides he's just going to cobble together a bunch of machines, create his own magic, and his own magical aptitude tests to go with it. So towards the beginning, two sisters take the test and one of them becomes his first student. And the other one, the sister, she fails and goes on to steal a magic vial that he created and use it pretty much as a form of escapism from her own life. Just not a great idea. So some things kind of go wrong for her after that. So who's the main character? The main character is the one who steals the vial. Oh, okay. uh, her name is Tiadavar, and she's a failed printmaker. She's kind of stuck working in her father's bakery. She's stuck in this weird marriage situation because her culture has restrictive marriage laws. Oh, very, very cool. Okay, now you're going to do a reading for us. So tell us a little bit of what you're going to read and then um, you can start reading. Okay, um, so this is from Pumpkin Goblins. It's maybe halfway into the book. And this is after the main character, Amber, has kind of gotten dragged into the main action of saving Halloween and all that stuff. And she's gone out, she's been helping the goblins, she's on a secret mis mission for Ebelween, a goblin wizard. And because there's a whole teleporting thing, she accidentally pulls her brother's girlfriend into this whole saving Halloween adventure as well, because she grabs her arm at the right time. I think that's the main thing you'd need to know for this scene. I'm just going to take a sip of my drink. Chapter 17, The Lair. Amber gasped when they got inside. A real witch's lair. Roots tangled in the ceiling. Herbs hung from some of them. The air smelled of spicy smoke and mugwort. The only light came from small golden gems tucked into corners and jinks in the roots. Sybil came up behind her. Are you kidding? This is a lab. Look, there's a Bunsen burner. She pointed to a chunky clay bowl sitting on a heavy iron burner. Next to it, a piece of thick tree root had been pinned to a board. A neat row of cutting tools sat on top of a drawing pad, 
filled with overlapping geometric diagrams drawn in a faded stain of brown inks. There, now we can talk. Ebeline lit the burner with a small flint starter that had tin acorns on one end. Blue flame flared up around the bowl. Witch, said Amber. Lab, said Sybil. Applesauce with nutmeg and moth wings, said Ebeline. I still need to eat when I'm working. Right, of course. Amber tried to edge in front of Sybil. Look, I know we probably have a lot of important things to go over, she said, trying out the college professor voice her parents use sometimes. But Sybil's only here because I didn't want her to get lost in the woods. Can you get her home? Before Sybil could protest, Ebeline waved a hand in the air. Sybil, that's not your true name, is it? It is. Ebeline nodded. Fine, I accept that. But there's another name. It hangs from you like an old shirt. Katie. What? Amber turned on Sybil. Your name isn't really Sybil? She looked at Sybil's familiar demon skeleton sweatshirt, her mop of black hair, and her high boots, and tried to fit Katie into that picture. It was like forcing a puzzle piece into the wrong spot. Katie's not my name except for when I get my driver's license, and during attendance. It's not, okay? Does this really matter? Only to my curiosity, said Eloine, and turned up the knob on her burner. Now, Sybil, I made a deal with Amber earlier. I can make one with you also. This is all for the good of Halloween. If you are willing to help, if you will work with Amber to complete a task, I can make sure you get home later. And then what? A struggle of emotions played out on her face. Fine, whatever. I'll help. You send me home. That's not fair, said Amber. She didn't ask to come here. She's only here because of me. Where's Torlick, anyway? Ebeline didn't so much as raise an eyebrow, and yet her face turned into a cold statue like a queen. Torlick is helping me directly. Doing what? There is a ritual. You know that everything we did tonight was to transform the goblin oak, to make it capable of growing its own pumpkins so that we don't have to rely on snatching them. Ebeline traced one of her pointed nails over a wall diagram of the goblin oak. When Torlick was younger, I thought he could become a wizard. I taught him some. Hobkit says he needs every goblin out there snatching pumpkins to save the tree. Save it for this year, anyway. I need every wizard, every goblin who can handle a tiger eye orb or snap out a simple hex to save the tree so this won't happen again next year. But to get to the point, but Torlick was supposed to, we weren't supposed to be separated at all. You never said about a ritual. I didn't have to. Sybil started to open her mouth, but Amber interrupted. Yes, but... I may not think humans will attack us with their doomsday hot air balloons or their mind control gas or whatever Hobkit thinks. I do not owe them an explanation. There was a pause. Amber tried to stare down Ebeline, who was far better at staring people down, be they human or goblin. So, said Sybil, your applesauce is burning. Maybe? Is that what moth wings are supposed to look like? Ebeline pushed the clay bowl into a mat onto a mat, turned off her burner with an irritated flick, and shifted again to face Amber and Sybil. If you're going to help me instead of bickering about my nephew's whereabouts, I need you to find the summer magic. It's wild and erratic, and it's overwhelming the oak, hurting it. It can help instead, but we need to find its source. There are no more goblins to do this. No more. Do you agree to this task? I do, said Amber, feeling that this was a grave and important moment indeed. Sybil nodded. Good. Now what do you know about the Bramble Dark? Amber said nothing. Ebeline snapped her fingers and a thorny shadow flowed in through the trap door and leapt to her side, pulsing bigger and smaller. It seemed both alive and impatient. 
Sybil reached out a hand to it and the shadow rose up as though preparing to guard against it. Amber's heart beat faster, the bramble dark, rushing tangles of thorny vines that were as much fog as they were anything else. It was the thing that had toyed with her phone and her map and had risen up against her when she was running from Sybil. But it was also the guard's head wrapped in shadow and thorns when she escaped from the jail. This, said Ebeline, twirling a finger and causing the bramble dark to twirl as well, is the bramble dark, or at least a part of it. I recognize it. Ebeline lowered her hand and the bramble dark slunk to the floor against her palm. Watch out for it as you seek the source of the magic. Then she waved her hand and the bramble dark vanished. Sybil blinked when it disappeared and shook her head as if coming out of a trance. What will it do to us? It is the protector of the goblin oak, a type of shifting magic. It roams acres and acres of forest to prevent anyone from reaching the oak. It blocks trails. Any who try to pass through it become lost. If need be, they forget entirely. So like hikers? Asked Sybil, it makes hikers lost? Anyone, anyone who doesn't have a goblin insignia. Wow, those hikers must be a real problem. What about squirrels and stuff? Ebelween ignored the question. Now you must be going. The trap door has a switch on the wall. The oak may not survive another attack. Ebelween turned to a table stacked high with enormous diagrams. Wait, what are we looking for? Asked Amber. Summer where there should be no summer. Things that aren't spooky. Things that don't belong in the forest. Whatever that is there that isn't Halloween. And with that, she turned away again, passing a tiger eye orb over the stack of papers. Great, that helps, muttered Sybil. Chapter 18, The Search. Even from the mushroom patch that surrounded the trap door, the bramble dark haunted their steps, hovering over the ground in a low fog. Past the load henge, Sybil broke their silence. Do you think summer magic is just goblin code for global warming? It was real magic with flashes of light and stuff, heart music that hurt my eyes and smelled like blueberries. Okay, so I guess we have a chance of finding it. Maybe. Amber consulted her compass. The needle ticked like the pendulum of an old grandfather clock, telling her nothing. A rapid panic came upon her. Before Sybil could see anything, she swallowed down the panic and tucked the compass away in her shirt. This way. She pointed them down a wide dirt path. A road, maybe. One direction led into the forest and the other back to Cobbley Village. It seemed like weeks since Amber had been in the forest, walking on tiny, tangled, false paths. This wider one was like a highway compared to the paths she had gotten lost on. Lanterns hung from the trees. Amber couldn't figure out how they were lit. There. Shouldn't be any problem. Problem? With getting lost. Sybil shrugged. The bramble dark, washing up against their feet like waves and washing away into fog, seemed to shrug too. As they left the Lodehenge well behind, the forest became deeper, darker, larger, and older. Creatures Amber couldn't identify swooped from tree to tree. Occasionally, eyes blinked out of the brush obscured by the bramble dark. Strangers and stranger beings and spooks, the goblins had said. Somehow, and no matter what their map had said, Amber knew that the goblin oak was miles and miles away from her house. I can't believe this, said Sybil. It's a Halloween forest. Sure enough, as soon as she stepped over a tendril of bramble dark, Amber saw a patch of tiny gravestones growing in midnight leaves. Glowing white, glowy white ghost pipes cropped up between them. Vampiric faces stared out from some of the trees, and Amber couldn't tell if they had grown that way or been carved. Rotted wood gargoyles perched above them as though they had been frozen, pawing invisible spooks in the Halloween air. Can you imagine if the Whelans saw this? Amber asked. They'd probably move here. Sybil ignored her. 
Stopping short at a bend in the road, she tilted her head up to the trees. I don't get what we're supposed to be looking for. What Ebelween said, anything that isn't spooky. Everything here is spooky. Amber started down the road again. Then we need to keep going until we find something that isn't. So I'm guessing that's getting close to 10 minutes at that point. I do have a little more, but. That's okay. The readers can buy your book to read the rest. <laughs> Good plan. Well, thank you very much for being on our show. And yeah, thanks for uh, having me. I'll include all your links in the episode for your website and your Goodreads and your Facebook and your Instagram and your Twitter so people can find you if they're interested in buying your books. Awesome. All right. So until next time. Okay. Bye. For more upcoming episodes of the Artsy Raven about writing and publishing, visit us at jfgarrard.com slash arpodcast. A reminder to Patreon subscribers that there is bonus content available for every episode on the Patreon website. If you enjoyed the show, you can show your appreciation by buying us some digital coffee. The Artsy Raven is produced by J.F. Garrard. The voice in the show's introduction is Chris Gorman, and music is by Tim Moore. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe. Mm-hmm.